Studio B. So if you're watching, go ahead and click that uh, subscribe, that like, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and then also on YouTube, click that subscribe, and then also hit that little bell to make sure that you're up to date on all of the fresh topics that are coming out here on Studio B. Today, uh, I am alone uh, at the set of Studio B, at the table of Studio B, but I got some stuff that we need to talk about, um, and hopefully we can uh, drive the conversation just a little bit uh, further. Uh, thank you for all of those uh, emails and those uh, messages that we got uh, on the past couple of episodes, and we're going to be running in that same vein today. But I want to talk to us today about all the stuff that's going on, and I want to offer a new perspective, um, something that will hopefully change the conversation to drive us in a different direction. Um, and we're talking about today about racism, oppression, um, all the things that are going on in the news right now, Black Lives Matter, you know, all the, uh, the, the, the issues that are uh, dominating our news cycles right now. And so we want to kind of break this thing down in regards to um, where do we go from here. And so when I was thinking about this, uh, we've had a lot of conversation with some good friends and a lot of different perspectives um, about this particular topic. But I want to kind of hone this in, if you will, about what to do next, about how we as black people move uh, the needle forward. Um, I have been on record as saying that we in this generation owe a debt to the previous generation and the struggles that they've had to overcome uh, to get us where we are right now. We in 2020 are enjoying privileges that were absolutely unheard of in my grandmother's generation or her generation. And so because of some of the things that they've had to endure back in those days, we get the benefit of enjoying them right here today. Uh, I make the distinction that we have not by any stretch of the imagination crossed over the finish line and that we can't sing Kumbaya all together at this particular moment. But I always wanna drive people to the progress that has been made not denying the further work that needs to be done, but taking the time just to acknowledge acknowledge the progress that has been made for our people um, in the years that have passed. And so, but there are some issues that we need to talk about uh, in regards to our community as a whole. And when you're talking about this whole thing about Black Lives Matter and the subjugation of Black Lives Matter and the um, the profit of Black Lives Matter and um, the agenda of Black Lives Matter. If, if Black Lives Matter is to matter, then it must matter to us first. Um, we can't get other people to acknowledge that Black Lives Matter if Black Lives Matter does not first matter to us. And if we're going to do this thing in a very holistic way, we have to do this thing radically. Um, it has to be a radical change. Um, and in order to make Black Lives Matter a very prominent movement that can really do some real progressive good in our culture that we are in right now, we have to take a radical stance on Black Lives Matter. That means we have to examine everything that we hold dear. 
Uh, we got to go and look at our hip hop music. We have to go and look at the people in which we idolize um, in our music today. It's no it's no um, secret that we misogynize our women through the music in which we listen to. Um, it's no different to when we paint our black women as this, that and the other through social media and movie um, uh, productions. And so if we're going to talk about Black Lives Matter, then it has to matter to us first. Uh, in order for it to matter to anybody else, it must first matter to us first. And so I want to talk about a couple of things today on our podcast um, that is driven off of data research. Uh, I'm one of these guys that uh, I'm a numbers guy. Um, I believe that numbers are important. Matter of fact, God thinks numbers are important because there's a whole book in the Bible called Numbers. Uh, so numbers matter and data matters and research matters. And so when we take the time to drive into the data and look at the research and get an objective view and not an emotional response, I believe we're able to move the conversation forward in a very productive way. And so I want to talk about some things in which we um, that we need to know and that we need to be talking about collectively in order to not lose this platform that we are currently on right now. And so this this is this is going to talk about some social scientists and some 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 data that has been collected through um, a myriad of different sources um, that has been vetted. Um, and I'll provide all of those links for you here um, momentarily. But I want to talk about the forces that are against black uh, black America. And these things are material, they're historical, cultural and political that shape and constrict the life and the life chances of black males here in the U.S. And that has a lot to do with the portrayal of black people or black men as it relates to this society. And all you got to simply do is look at the betrayal and how black people are portrayed in media sources across whatever platform you choose to look at, whether that's social media, whether that's music, whether that's movies, whether that's television, whether that's radio. I want you to look at how black people are portrayed in that sense. And that drives a lot of the conversation. And if you look at where we are right now, about how the intention uh, of how the attention is focused on black um, black people as it relates in 2020, you will see that there's general antagonism, there's exaggerated views of expectations and tolerance for race-based social economic disparities, um, exaggerated uh, views related to criminality and violence. Uh, there's a lack of identification or sympathy for black males. There's reduced intentions, attention, and structural and other big picture factors and public support and punitive approach to problems. And so this is all done from a um, from my mindset, and I'll get into this in just a little bit, about how the narrative for black America is portrayed. I view black America as a strong arm, a strong engine. Um, I have been on record on uh, Studio B as saying, I absolutely and holistically reject the victimization of black America that we are so victimized, we are so oppressed, we are so held back that the only reason we are not at this level is because of what everybody is doing to us to keep us from attaining this level or this achievement. I holistically reject that. 
I believe that black America is strong. I believe that we have the intellectual capacity to do whatever we set our mind to do. I believe that we are spiritually astute and whatever barriers that are placed in front of us, we can overcome them because we have done that through our entire history. There's no other people group on the face of the planet that have gone through the socioeconomic problems, the political barriers, the um, institutional barriers that black America has faced since its inception here in America, 1619, and have overcome those things and the great odds and the great barriers that have that have uh, held us back for so long, we have overcome those by leaps and bounds. So within us is the capacity to do great things if we only set our mind to do it. And so I reject this idea that black America is so oppressed and so institutionalized that we can't do anything because the white man will not allow us to do it. I reject that wholeheartedly because I know people um, in my own circle of influence, people that I know personally that have overcome tremendous odds in order to get to where they are today. But let's talk about some numbers. And I want to um, talk about these numbers because they have real numbers. But the most current numbers that I can read, uh, that I can bring in regards to the uh, United States of America was in July of 2019. As of July 2019, there are 328,239,523 people in the United States. So that's two, uh, 328 million people that make up the 50 states of uh, the United States of America. That's a 6.3 increase from 2010 when about 20 million people since 2010 have been added to our populace. Now let's break that down in regards to uh, percentages. So we got 328 million people that make up the United States of America, 76.3% of which are white or Anglo, 13.4% uh, are of African American or black, and the 13.4% is a rise from 2017 of 12.5. We have Asian, excuse me, American Indian, which make up 1.3%. We have Asians, which make up 5.9%. Now watch this. We have Hispanics that make up 18.5% of that 328 million people that call themselves Americans. And those are the most recent numbers that we have in July of 2019, according to the census.gov. So there are about 39 million, roughly 39 million to about 41 million, depending on the, the, the time frame in which you compromise these numbers, which makes up about 13.4% of the population. So let's just make the number even and say about 40 million of the 328 million people in the United States are of African-American descent. And when I say African-American, I'm including, you know, all people who are non-white or non-Hispanic, non-Asian black people. So about 40 million people as an average number in the United States are black people. So 40 million blacks. And when we're talking about the number of blacks in America and the social power and the economic power that 40 million people can have, we can do a whole lot of things that those collective 40 million uh, people can come together in unison. So we're talking about 40 million people that make up the um uh, the populace of America. Now, let's talk about some numbers in regards to what that looks like. Uh, in 2018, 
um, the Academy for um, Educational Justice said that there are 4.5 million African-Americans who hold a four-year college degree. 4.5 million African-Americans who hold a four-year college degree. Today, that nearly 4.5 million Americans, African-Americans who hold a four-year uh, college degree, that is an absolute exponential growth from 2005 when that 4.5 million, which is about 19%, was at 4.5%. So that number has been exponentially growing since 2005. But one of the, the disparaging numbers about this educational gap comes from the time of the Harlem, the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s when about 10,000 American blacks, one out of every thousand, were educated. So when we're looking at 1920 and 2020, we're saying in 1920, one in every 10,000 were educated. We're looking at right now in 2020, where we have 4.5 million African Americans who have earned a four-year college degree. Now, this goes on even further than that when you start talking about master's and even doctoral or PhD degrees of African Americans. Now, within this educational system, we have a gap that exists in the black community. Overall, 4.579 African-Americans have passed a four-year college degree or higher, and this is breathtaking progress. But here's the disparaging part about that. The blemish on this good news is that while this fast-growing majority of these African-Americans earning a college degree has increased exponentially, the gap between African-American women and African-American men seem to be growing as just a wider number. So in that 4.6 million people who have a four-year college degree, the majority of that is African-American women. And so how does that look like in 2020? when we're talking about all the things that are going on in our landscape, um, black America right now has the potential to do great things if black America would only acknowledge the potential that we have. I am on record as being a uh, black man, of course, but I believe that God has a plan for each of us. And I believe that the destiny of the person lies within the hands of that person. You get to determine how far you go you get to determine the success you are able to attain. And when I say that we stand on the shoulders of giants, we stand on the shoulders of people that have gone through painstaking um, uh, racism, absolute horrid circumstances, and they were able to get through it in such a way as to provide the means for me to be here right now with you on Studio B. Uh, we're coming from a time in which people were killed when they learned how to read because they understood the value of education. And so when the master found out that this person knew how to read, there were very severe circumstances that had to be um, uh, followed. Uh, um, um, there were severe consequences that had to be held when that person knew that that other person knew how to read. Here we are knowing that and now are at a place to where we have the opportunity to gain the knowledge that would at one point in time was withheld from us. And so when you're looking at black America, when you're looking at what's going on in our context today, uh, everybody, yes, have we, do we still have a long way to go? Absolutely. We still got a, we still got a long way to go. Uh, but I'm of the mindset of why not highlight those 
who are doing good for themselves and use those as the model and the example to be shown across platforms of, of social media and, and the likes of how to go about doing our daily business. And so when you're looking at what we used to encounter in the 1920s and even earlier such, and looking at where we are right now in 2020, we have come a long way. But the victimization of the black man is a profit that keeps black men and black women and black people in this constant victimization role. We are powerful beyond belief. If we would only believe that and do the things necessary to attain what we all say that we want. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, I come from a group of people, my mother um, who had me when she was 16 years old and my mother could have checked out my mother could have said, you know what? Uh, I had a, a child at 16 years old. My life is over. Uh, I'm not going to graduate school. I'm not going to do anything great. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to soak in my, in my mistakes. And I'm going to take what life gives to me. She could have very easily done that and nobody would have blamed her. But my mother didn't do that at 16 years old, having a young baby, not having the father in the life. She made a conscious decision to go back to school. She made a conscious decision to go to college, get her degree from the University of Houston, graduate. She made a conscious decision to go on and do some great things in her life, rise up the business ladder and do some great things in a professional career. She made a conscious decision to not be held back by the mistakes that she previously made. And so her success was not based on somebody victimizing her because she got pregnant at 16 years old. The mistake was made, I was born, but she decided to do something with that. And so one of the things that I'm going to go down on record as saying is I believe that no matter where you are in life, no matter if you're in the rich house or the poor house, no matter what side of town you happen to have grown up on, you have potential laced on the inside of you. You can do great things. You can do great and magnificent things. If we only get out of this victimization mindset. And so I believe that we are in a place right now in 2020 where we can make some real change and move the conversation forward because we can do for ourselves and we don't have to have all of these people doing things for us. There is greatness within us. And so when you're looking at the percentage of education, and I do believe I am a strong advocate for education, and I do believe that education closes the economic gap substantially, that the more that you learn, the more that you earn. I believe that wholeheartedly, that the more that you learn, the more that you earn. So I believe that there's a direct correlation to the economic disparity between the have and the have-nots and the educational gap that exists between the have and the have-nots. But I just read you here that 4.6 million African-Americans have attained a four-year college degree or better. And so that gap is closing, and it's closing substantially if we can only put the attention on getting those educational gaps closed. I believe, and, and, and let me just say this, because I was thinking about this on the way up here. Um, we're living right now in 2020 where the landscape for economic uh, advancement has changed. Um, um, college education is important. 
Um, but there's also CE, continual education. There's also being educated with whatever job that you happen to be on, um, um, increasing your knowledge in whatever capacity that you may be operating in right now. So wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, you can educate yourself further in whatever field or profession you happen to be in. I believe that education is not just book education, but it is continual education. Um, it is self-learning. Education could be uh, broadened across many particular scales. And so with that said, I believe that as we close this educational gap, the economic gap will continue to close as well. But there's also some additional attainment that we can do if we do self-reflection. Now, this is where I'm going to get into a little bit of trouble. Um, when you're looking at the money gap and the money gap is one of these things that I believe is directly tied to the educational gap. And so if we can close the educational gap, we can then in turn close the money gap. If you look at the household median income of 2008, uh, 2018 from the census bureau, this might surprise you, but the number one economic, um, uh, earners of income in the U S are not white people. They're Asian. Asian household income in 2018, according to the census.gov, was $87,194. That's the average median uh, household income for Asians in America, $87,194. Whites are $17,000 less. They come in at $70,642. So the number one uh, group in America in regards to household income is not white people, it's Asians. And by a pretty significant gap, almost $20,000. The next one, the third, is Hispanics. Now, I want you to see this number. Hispanics, the Hispanic household income is $51,450. This is as of 2018 from census.gov. Anybody can uh, look at these numbers. So the third median income is Hispanic or Latino at $51,450. So Asian is first, white is second, Hispanic or Latino is third. Fourth is black or African-American. And our household median income as of 2018 was $41,361. That's almost, not almost, that's more than half, less than half of what Asians make. Almost half of what less than what whites make. And Hispanic and Latinos are making $10,000 more an average household income than is black or African-Americans. Now you got to look at the numbers and ask yourself why you got to ask yourself, why are these numbers this way? Now, when you're looking at Asians, I know a lot of Asians and, and, and please hear me. Um, Asians do life a much different way, a much different way. Asians, um, you rarely see um, Asians playing basketball, uh, playing baseball, playing, uh, running track, um, Asians. And for the Asians that I know are, are very, 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 uh, strong on education. Very, very strong on education. Very, very strong on education. Could care less about dribbling the ball or running down a, a baseball field. They could care less about that, but they do care about getting your education. Matter of fact, at Clemens high school, um, right there off of Sweetwater in 59, uh, a 4.0 GPA will land you in the bottom half of your graduating class. A 4.0. Uh, they're graduating with 4.6s and 5.1s and such at Clemens High School. 
Okay, and all you got to do is look at the demographics of Clemens and realize who their valedictorians have been for the last 10 plus years. And they're not white, they're not Hispanic, and they're not black. They're Asian. So Asians are first, whites are second, Hispanic or Latinos are third, and black or African Americans are fourth. Now, at $41,361 for an average median uh, household, those numbers are greatly different than the Asians at 87000 or the whites at seventy. And so the question is, what's the gap? Okay, and some will point to institutional racism, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. We'll talk about economic and, and educational racism and all those things that people are going to talk about, and we'll get into the numbers if, the, if those numbers are applicable to these numbers. And I'm going to make a case that there are a lot of these numbers that have nothing to do with those particular issues. Now, if you look at black incomes exceed their pre-recession high, the, of course, this is, uh, again, this is in 2018, where starting in 2006, the average black median household was about $40,242. It dipped at a record low in 2011 and went all the way down to 37650 And now in 2018, it's right at forty-one dollars to $42,000. So it was peaking uh, at a set of 40,000, dropped all the way down to 30, uh, 37,000. And it's been on the upswing since 2011, all the way to 2018, till around 41,000, 42,000 at an average base. Now, when you're looking at what this looks like in regards to specific household incomes, in regards to specific areas, now we're getting location-based, the numbers are even more telling. So when you look at many metro areas experience strong uh, increases of black household incomes, when you're looking at San Francisco, the black median household income in 2013 was $43,316. The same household income in San Francisco jumped to $59,083. That's a a change of 36% from 2013 to 2018. If you're looking at in Tampa Bay, the household uh, income for black families was $34,160 in 2013. In 2018, it jumped to $41,612. That's a percentage raise of about 21.8%. When you're looking at New York, New York of all places, and you know how expensive it is to live in New York. In 2013, the black medium household income was 46799 In 2018, it's at 53632 That's a raise of about 14.6%. When you're looking at Miami, you're looking at $39,645 in 2013. 2018, it's at $44,004. That's an 11% rise. Now, here's the reason why I'm pointing out those particular cities, because by any metric, those are the most expensive cities in all of America to stay in. And when you're looking at the household median income of black America from 2013 all the way up to 2018, those numbers have been steadily rising. Now, so we so the. So the response to that is the money is out there and it is being made. Now, is it being made in exponential jumps like you see the Asian family? No, it's not. But what's the cause of that? Why is it not jumping at record numbers like the Asians are? Well, again, I'm making a direct tie in to the education and economics. I do believe that education increases economics. And when we begin to start to increase the econ- the educational capacity, it will in turn increase 
the economic capacity. And these numbers are without fail. I mean, anybody can Google these numbers on census.gov and get the exact same numbers that I'm talking to you right now on Studio B. 4.6 million black Americans, African Americans, have attained a four-year degree or higher, which is directly resulting in higher median uh, income households. Those two numbers are directly married to each other, and you can't have one without the other. Now, let's give you some further evidence uh, of census.gov, where anybody can go and look at. What accounts for the progress in the black income is one likely factor is increased employment opportunity. In the sheer prime age of 25 to 54, black adults on their job increased significantly from in 38 to 50 of the metro areas from 2013 to 2018. That means that there were more economic advance, or more economic opportunities that were presented through job, uh, through employment. And so from black America from 2013 all the way up into 2018, there has been within those 50 major metroplexes in America, 38 of the 50 have offered major uh, economic advancement for, excuse me, uh, uh, employment advancement for African-Americans. This is according to census.gov and according to the Metropolitan Policy Program. Right now, um, we are being shown as we need all this help. And, and poor black America, um, again, you need somebody to come in and save you. Poor black America, you are so oppressed, you are so um, institutionalized that you can't do anything for yourself. That's the narrative that is being painted um, by media outlets and the like. And I just have a strong um, distaste, even a disdain for that narrative that is being painted towards black America. And so the reason why I wanted to come in and give you encouraging numbers is because um, everybody, we have the capacity to do what we want to do. It's within our grasp. Um, to really be at the forefront of change and not always on the backside of handouts. We can really push the, the narrative forward by bringing up to the forefront men and women of color who have overcome tremendous obstacles to get to a level to where they are. And so these numbers bear the fact that black America is doing pretty well. Black America is doing pretty well. And if black America would only um, look within and say that we can do what we're asking everybody else to do, we can do that internally, then I believe black America would, uh, would grow by leaps and bounds. And so the black employment uh, rates and black median household incomes across metropolitan areas from 2013 to 2018 has raised uh, exponentially. I want to get to this um, because I want to talk about these things that are going on uh, in our current culture about discrimination and privilege and stereotype and all of these things that uh, on the landscape uh, of where we are right now. There are some forms of oppression um, that we do have to talk about, because I think if you don't talk about them, then you're, um, you, you, you are uh, blind to what is right there in front of you. Um, I have said many times before 
that we have not crossed over that 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 finish line. All things are not kumbaya. Uh, we do have some work to be done. I think some things that we need to be immediately focused on right now is education form reform. I think some things that we need, definitely need to be focused on right now is judicial reform. Uh, prison reform. I think those are issues that absolutely need to be addressed uh, in a very, very holistic way. So we need to look at those. Uh, but there are some forms of oppression that we need to talk about. And those forms of oppression are very, very um, specific. There's ideological oppression, there's institutional oppression, interpersonal oppression, and internalized oppression. And I want to talk about the internalized oppression for a little bit. Um, this internalized oppression works within the groups of people who suffer the most from mistreatment. Um, oppressed people internalize the ideology of inferiority. Um, they see it reflected in institutions. They experience disrespect interpersonally from members of a dominant group. And they eventually come to internalize the negative messages about themselves. It has been told, if you've been told that you were stupid, worthless, and abnormal, and have been treated as such all of your life, then it's not surprising that you would eventually succumb to that belief and begin to internalize it. And so what happens is this particular group or a particular group has been so um, internally oppressed that they begin to believe that message because it's been repeated to them over and over and over and over and over again. And to what the Bible says, somebody has to break the stronghold. And so oppression from outside that oppressed group, by the time it gets internalized, the external oppression um, um, is um, the damage has already been done. And so what does that look like? Um, it looks like that if you have been told something over and over and over again in your life, then eventually you begin to believe what you have been told. The old saying is that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. Words not only hurt, they can kill. Uh, words, if they are aimed in your direction over a length of time, can absolutely change your mindset and the way that you view life. And so with that being said, words matter. Words absolutely matter. And so to prevent yourself from internalizing a message you have to believe a counter message other than the one that is being told to you. And the counter message that I'm trying to get black America to understand is that you're not a victim. You are a victor. Um, the Bible says that you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, that if God be for you, then it's more than the entire world against you. The message that I convey to black America is not that we are victims, not that we need somebody to come in and fight our battles for us, but that we are victors. And we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. We fight from a, a people group that have overcome absolutely um, hard times and have come out shining on the other side. And we owe a debt and a gratitude to the people that have come before us. And so before we internalize the message of being victims, we must first counter that message with a different message. And what's the different message? Wherever you're watching from right now, you can do whatever you set your mind to do. Uh, it's almost cliche to say it, but um, with God, all things are possible. Um, before you internalize that message of being a victim, see yourself as the victor. See yourself as the conqueror and not the conquered. 
See yourself on the other side of the battle. See yourself as winning and not always losing. See yourself as the head and not the tail. See yourself as on top and not the bottom. It's just simply a matter of perspective. And I believe that if we can change the narrative, we can change the outcome. In this particular time is that greatness has been bestowed on the inside of all of us. If you possess the Holy Spirit of God, then you can do whatever God has set for you to do. Whatever the will of God is for your life, no man, black, white, or indifferent can keep you from accomplishing what God has set forth for you to do. Nobody, nobody, nobody. If you're not accomplishing your dreams that God has set forth on your heart to do, it's nobody that's stopping you from accomplishing those dreams. You just have not set forth the programs and the processes and the disciplines in order to accomplish what you say that you want to accomplish. On last week, I did a, um, I did a little, uh, program. Uh, it was a impromptu, not an impromptu, um, uh, message on uh, Black Lives Matter and talked about what we need to do moving forward. And so when I talked about Black Lives Matter, um, you got to give the whole qualification about Black Lives Matter. And without the fear of sounding redundant, I won't go all into that. But Black Lives Matter. There's literally a time in history when Black Lives didn't matter. We talked about that. And we're talking about the, uh, um, the lives of our ancestors and, and all that they had to go through. So there's literally a time in American history that black lives didn't matter. So black lives do matter. But there is a, a very clear line in the sand that I draw from Black Lives Matter, the movement and Black Lives Matter, the organization, because I believe that those two things are diametrically opposed. Black Lives Matter, the organization was created in 2014 at the death of our brother Trayvon Martin. And many of you know that that's when George Zimmerman, the wannabe security guard, uh, gunned this young black teenager down in cold blood. Uh, and so Black Lives Matter, the organization was founded in 2014 from the death of Trayvon Martin at the hands of George Zimmer. Now, George Zimmerman ultimately went free for the murder of uh, Trayvon Martin. And make no mistake about it, George Zimmerman murdered Trayvon Martin, but he walked away free from it. And, and, and so Black Lives Matter was founded up on that tragic case of our, our young brother, um, Trayvon Martin. And the founders of uh, Black Lives Matter, the organization, are three black ladies by the name of Alicia Gardner, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tamaiti. And we'll talk about them in, in depth. So these three black ladies were the founders of Black Lives Matter or the hashtag Black Lives Matter, which eventually turned into the organization in late 2014, early 2015. So the Black Lives Matter, the organization could have been used in a very positive way, in a very positive way to move the black agenda forward in regards to grassroots matters that needed to be addressed. But unfortunately, the organization got hijacked. And so this is when I make the distinction between Black Lives Matter, the organization, uh, which is an entity, and Black Lives Matter, the movement, uh, which is a progressive movement. And so when you look at what's going on right now for the last month and a half, and you see these protesters, and oftentimes these young protesters out there, these young protesters are out there because they really want to see change happen. There are some things happening in the landscape that they're not um, okay with, and they're out there protesting and doing it the right way in order to bring light to those particular issues. 
But there are some people out there on the other side of that protest that call themselves protesters that are there to hijack the movement. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. And so Black Lives Matter, the organization, and again, I'm drawing clear lines between the organization and the movement, started in 2014. Two of the founders, uh, Miss Alicia Garza and Sister Patrice Coulars, uh, blatantly identified themselves as Karl Marxist. And one of their uh, heroes, and this is from the lips of the founders, admire Karl Marxist. Um, this organization, Black Lives Matter, has absolutely nothing to do now with the advancement of black America, literally nothing. And they have now embraced ideology that is opposed to that of Black Lives Matter. They strongly support Karl Marx. Well, everybody, who's Karl Marx? Uh, he was born in 1813, died in 1883. Um, but his literature, his manifestos, are greatly used through communist regimes all throughout the world. He was a uh, communist who um, um, disguised himself as a socialist. And his philosophy, based on uh, historical materialism, is something that is still being used through our communist regimes, even to this day in 2020. This is his, his historical materialism. Here's what he says. It is centered around the idea that forms of society rise and fall as they further to impede the development of human productive power. So Karl Marx said one of the ways that you harness society is limit their ability to reproduce. He says this, by impeding the development of human productive power. This is going to make sense in just a little bit when I'm talking about these three founders of Black Lives Matter, the organization not Black Lives Matter, the movement. They strongly admire Karl Marx. You respond to, to, to those kinds of, again, loving criticisms? Um, I think that the criticism is helpful. Um, I also think that it might, um, I think of a lot of things. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. And so what is some of his further views? He also, ha he also has the historical process proceeding to the necessary series of modes, hear what I'm saying, a production characterized by class struggle culminating in communism. So Marx's economic analysis of capitalism is based on his version, hear me, of the labor value of theory. So he had this theory about the labor of value and what that meant in regards to a capitalist society and a communist society. Karl Marx was one that did not and matter of fact, not just did not, he adamantly denied a capitalist society. And so when you're looking at Karl Marx, the value of his uh, labor theory was absolutely in line to what the founders of Black Lives Matter had. I am opposed to Black Lives Matter, the organization, but I am absolutely on board with Black Lives Matter, 
the movement. If anybody were to call me and say, hey, Pastor Holman, uh, let's go so that we can advance this particular cause for the advancement of black people, then I am absolutely on board with that. But I am not on board with the Black Lives Matter, the organization, because those two things are absolutely diametrically opposed. And so the founders of Black Lives Matter, the organization, again, that was founded in 2014, um, have a strong Marxist view. So one of the ways that he said to control the masses is to impede the development of human productive power. Now, you see that going on right now in the abortion industry. Um, everybody, because if Black Lives Matter, if Black Lives Matter outside of the womb, then Black Lives Matter should absolutely matter in the womb. And so when you consider that uh, since 1973, Roe v. Wade, uh, since 43 million African-American uh, black boys and girls have been slaughtered in the wombs uh, through the abortion clinics, through Planned Parenthood, but yet no Black Lives uh, uh, Matter protests are happening outside of Planned Parenthood, I have a problem with that demographic. I have a problem with that scenario. Then when you look at Karl Marx and his um, value, uh, his labor theory value, this is what he said. He said, the analysis of the capitalist profit as the extraction surplus of the exploited um, patriot, he says, the analysis, history, and economics come together in Marl's prediction of the inevitable economic breakdown of capitalism to be replaced by communism. So what Karl Marx said was, we want to break down a capitalist society and replace it with a communist society. And so that's why I said that Karl Marx was a communist masquerading himself as a socialist. Socialism will never, ever work in America. It will never, ever work in America. It is proven not to work in any other place around the world. But one of the things that Karl Marx wanted to do was to break down the capitalist society and replace it with the communist society. Well, again, two, Alicia and Patrice, hold Karl Marx as one of their mentors and greatly respect his writings and his work. And again, everybody, I want you to go to blacklivesmatter.com and I want you to look at this on the About Us page. This is stuff that they're not even denying. Uh, they, they, they make public statements um, uh, when they were on CNN a couple of years ago where they absolutely and adamantly say that they are Karl Marxists. As a matter of fact, responding to an interviewer, the BLM uh, movement um, thought about their clear ideological structure. Colours, that's Patrice, responded that she and the other co-founder in particular, that's, um, that's Alicia, are dedicated to the ideology of a communist leader, Karl Marx. That's her words verbatim. Here's what she said. We actually do have an ideological frame, myself and Alicia in particular. We are trained organizers, we are trained Marxists, and we are superverse in ideological theories. That's her words verbatim that her and Alicia were trained Marxists and that they hold in high regard the communist leader, Karl Marx, Karl Marx. So if anybody wants to look at this, you can go to blacklivesmatter.com and you can look up um, Patricia and, and the rest and you can look at what they stand for. And to that, I want you to go to their website and go to the about us and look at the mission core statements. These are their values. These are the things in which they themselves say are important. And these are the things that they are pushing. The, organi the organization's stated goals are very troubling to say the least. Here's what they say. We are a self-reflective 
to do the work required. Now I'm, 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 I'm quoting verbatim required to dismantle uh, gender privilege and uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. So one of their stated goals is to dismantle gender privilege. What does that mean? Dismantle gender privilege means male and female. They want to get rid of those pronouns of male and female, he and she. They want to dismantle that. They want to get rid of that. And they want to uplift black trans folk, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. So one of the things that they want to do is to break down trans uh, they want to break down or dismantle gender privilege. Why? Because they believe that black trans folk and black trans women are being disproportionately impacted by violence. Now, the numbers will tell you absolutely different. That in 2018, now it's never, um, it's, it's, it's always a sad thing when anybody loses their life. But in 2020, since January up until now, eight trans people have been murdered uh, or killed um, in regards to this type of violence, where they've had violence aimed their aimed at their direction because of their particular um, preference, eight in 2020. And while eight is a significant number and those eight lives absolutely matter, I'm going to make it my goal to dismantle the gender privilege because of those eight. Now, everybody, the, the numbers, the numbers, again, the numbers matter. I want to get to this one because this is the one where I think uh, people misunderstand this whole Black Lives Matter, the, the organization and the real goal of the organization and the real goal of the movement, because those two things are going east and one's going west. Here's what they say. We want to dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts so that they can mother in private, even as they participate in public justice work. So they said we want to, and here's the words, dismantle the patriarchal practice. Well, for everybody that don't know what the patriarchy is, that's the father. Okay, so everybody right now in 2020 in black America, 74% of all births in the black community are, are, are born into out of wedlock homes. Uh, that means that they're born into a single parent home. So we're already facing a pandemic when you're talking about fatherlessness in the black community. But here's one of the stated goals when you go to the About Us page on the BlackLivesMatter.com. We want to dismantle. That's the words they use. I didn't put that in there. We want to dismantle the patriarchal practice. The patri We want to further take the black man out of the house. We want to take the black woman from the black man. That's their stated goal in number two, that we want to build a space that affirms black women that is free from misogyny and sexism and environments in which men are centered. So we want to take the black woman away from the black man. And then we want to take the black father out of the black home. Well, what are we talking about here? I thought black lives matter. I thought black lives, the organization was affirming black lives matter, the movement. But when you're telling me that you want to take the black woman away from the black man and you want to take the black father away from the black home, then what inevitably are you trying to do? You're trying to create chaos. And the words that they use here are dismantle. Dismantle means to utterly tear down. That's what that word means. 
So this is not a subtle taking down of the patriarchal practice. This is not a subtle taking away the black woman from the black man. This is not subtle in any regards. This is a dismantling of all that we hold to be true. Now, please hear what I'm saying here, everybody. Just go back. I said that black America for the majority of its history has always been a conservative people group. We have always been pro-God and pro-family. Even when all of this fatherlessness started infiltrating our homes in the late 60s and early 70s, when this thing really became the norm, when black men were leaving the homes in record numbers, we still had a strong sense of family. There was still a very strong family unit amongst the black, uh, black people. We've always been about God. We've always been about family. We've always tried to raise our children right. We've always tried to be respectful. All of those things have been absolutely par for the course when it comes to uh, black lives. And so when we're talking about where we are right now, we've always, always, always have been conservative in our beliefs about God and been by family. They, 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 they came, they want to take the black woman away from the black man they want to dismantle the patriarchal practice. They want to disrupt the prescribed nuclear family. And then here's what they want to say uh, fifthly. We foster a queer affirming network. When we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of the uh, heteronormative thinking or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual. That's what they said. We want to get rid of this heteronormative thinking. What does that simply mean? What in the world does that mean? That means determining people as men or women or girl or boy or male or female. The very basic of all human nature is to identify with what we have been doing for years. Genesis chapter number one, he created them male and female. So here's what they say. We want to foster a queer affirming network when we gather and we want to do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of the heteronormative thinking or rather the belief that all in the world are heterosexual unless he or she discloses otherwise. That's a stated mission point on Black Lives Matter. What does that mean, y'all? The basic of all human nature is to say, um, what are you having, a girl or a boy? That's the basic of all human nature. And here's what they want. Here's what they say. And they want to do. They want to completely destroy that. We want to get rid of that heteronormative thinking, which is what they call it. That all people are either male or female. And we want to get rid of that. Well, this is seemingly contradictory to the whole black lives matter. This seemingly contradicts everything about black lives matter. Well, why is that the case? Well, let's talk about the founder. Alicia Garza, who is a founder, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, uh, the organization, is married to a man by the name of Malachi Garza, a Hispanic transgender male that she married in 2008. So it makes it, it make no mistake about it. These points in line are absolutely in line with her beliefs. She married a transgender Hispanic male in 2008, and yet she affirms that her organization is absolutely fostering queer affirming networks. They are absolutely committed to uh, disrupting the prescribed nuclear family. They are, they are absolutely affirming that they're taking black women away from black men. Well, why is that the case? Because she is married to a Hispanic transgender male. Okay, let's look at Patrice, uh, Patrice Calores 
who is also married to a trans queer, a lesbian white lady out of Canada, that and she, uh, Miss Patrice, also identifies herself as a queer activist. She does not. She does not identify herself as a black activist. She identifies herself as a queer activist. Second of the two, second of the three of the uh, founders of Black Lives Matter, the organization. Opal, that's A-P-A-L, Tometi, is of Nigerian descent, but was married to a man that mysteriously right now in 2020, you can't find anything about this man. You can't find his name. You can't find his family. You can't find nothing about him. It's seemingly like this brother done just disappeared off the face of the earth. But we know that she was married in 2011 to a white man. So now we got three of the founders of Black Lives Matter, the organization, that is supposed to be on the forefront of pushing a black agenda so that black lives do indeed matter. But all of them have private lives that contradict the Black Lives Matter. And so when we're talking about them as an organization, I believe that it got hijacked very early on because of the potential that this organization had to really influence a lot of change. And it got hijacked by people that do not have the same intention in mind. Now the old act is, the old saying is, when you wanna find out what something is, follow the money. Well, when you go to Black Lives Matter, you scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page, to the bottom right-hand corner, the little yellow hyperlink that says donate now. You click that donate now button. It'll take you over to their, um, to their donate page where you can put in whatever amount that you wanna put in. But before you click submit, you're gonna have to put in, I agree to the terms and conditions. Well, before you do submit, I want you to click on the hyperlink that says terms and conditions. And I want you to read the hyperlinks before you click donate. Because there are many people that are donating to Black Lives Matter, the organization, and that money is not going to the cause by which you're donating it for. So when you click on the um, uh, terms and conditions, that blue hyperlink, you'll find that Black Lives Matter is underwritten by a platform called Act Blue. So when you click donate now, the donate now goes through Act Blue, which hosts um, Black Lives Matter, the organization. And through Act Blue, here's what they say. Our platform is available to Democratic candidates and committees and progressive organizations and nonprofits that share our values. Now, when you further go down to terms and conditions, you're going to find this section that has campaign finance laws. Now, you are donating to Black Lives Matter. So why is there a subsection under the, the um, uh, terms and conditions that has anything to do with campaign finance laws? I'm not donating to a, can to a presidential candidate. I'm donating to Black Lives Matter. I'm putting this $100 so that Black Lives Matter can fund a particular program for the advancement of Black Lives Matter, the movement. So why is there something in there about the campaign finance laws? So when you click on that little box that says, I agree, you agree to all the terms and conditions that 99.9% .9 of us don't read because it's too cumbersome to read that stuff. And we think more highly of people than we ought. And we say to ourselves, well, there's not going to be anything in that that's going to really hurt me. So I agree, even though I didn't read it. 
And so now what does all of this mean? What, what, what does all this mean? This, this means, this means that black folks have again been bamboozled. We're always, everybody is always profiting off of black people. We're always everybody's scapegoat. And when we're looking at black lives matter, if black lives matter, then they should matter to us too. It does not in any way, shape or form take away from the fight of fighting against police injustice and all of the things in which we're fighting for right now. It does not take any of the attention away from the social ills that we're still facing in 2020. Not at all, not at all, not at all, not at all. But I wish in Jesus name, I wish in Jesus name that we as black people would love ourselves as much as we're trying to get everybody else to love us. I wish that we will respect ourselves as much as we're trying to get everybody else to respect us. And if we're going to say black lives matter, then do you realize the overhaul that has to be done in black America so that black lives really do matter? And these people that are running around making profits off of us hand over fist. And we're buying all of this nonsense that they're feeding us, that we're so, uh, uh, so, so broken down and so broken. You can't do nothing for yourself and you need me to help you with everything. No, stand up black America. We can do some things on our own. And we don't need the approval of everybody else in order to do the things in which God has led for us to do. I'm going to do a study here in a couple of weeks where I want, where I'm going to um, publicize a study that I did back in 2009 about the black uh, presence in the Bible. Um, that even on that side that you've been bamboozled, that Jesus was not blonde hair and blue eyes. He did not have fair skin. Uh, all the depictions of Christ that you're seeing in and around the world are, are, are greatly um, uh, distorting. And so black lives matter. Yes, they do. But black lives matter should matter to black people first before they can matter to anybody else. Secondly. All right, family. So we appreciate you coming and spending this time with us here on studio B. Um, as we've talked about some very controversial, uh, controversial stuff. I know we have, uh, but everybody um, please hear my heart. Um, if God be for us, it's more than the world against us. Um, our ancestors, our forefathers who fought the good fight, who went through immeasurable pain, um, did so in the hopes that the generation following them would do much better. And I believe that, um, we owe a debt to those who have previously fought that battle. We owe a debt. We owe a debt. Um, and it's time that we start paying it. Um, we have to strategically do things that are going to put us and not just us, um, but our kids and our kids' kids in a better position um, so that they can enjoy um, the life that God has called for them to live. So we want to thank you for joining us here on this uh, episode of Studio B. Make sure you go to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter page, go to our YouTube, subscribe, hit that bell so that you will be up to date with all of the content that drops every single Monday and Friday on Studio B.